there's a growing number of sports where this is um, this is happening to women where they're not only losing out and being told basically to step aside so that these male-bodied competitors um, can have their day in the sun, um, but they're also being told they're not allowed to talk about it or complain about it, or if you do, you're going to be canceled and your life is going to be ruined. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. As you know, every week we have a mover and shaker here on this show to talk about the future of America. But in order to talk about the future of America, we also have to talk about the reality of America today. And I guarantee you, you will enjoy this conversation with this week's guest, a great friend of the Heritage Foundation, Carrie Lucas, president of the Independent Women's Forum. Carrie, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, I think probably hundreds of thousands of Americans know about Independent Women's Forum and your work. But before we even get into your story and some of the policy work that you and, and Heritage are working on together, tell us about IWF. Sure. Um, we're excited. We're celebrating our 30th year. Um, and we were f um, founded in the wake of the Clarence Thomas hearings where there was a lot of women who looked at who was being presented as speaking for women on TV and said, that's not for me. Um, so Independent Women's Forum was founded to give women a voice, um, women who are mainstream Americans, who reject leftist feminism um, and believe in limited government, economic liberty and personal freedoms. So we do talk about policy, um, both how it affects women, but then also talk to women about pu public policies. No, it's it's crucial. And I've, of course, heard about your work for many years, even before arriving here at Heritage myself. And as I, I'd like to start with most of our guests, both for my benefit, but also for the benefit of the audience. And this is the Southerner in me coming out. What's your story? I mean, here you are leading <laughs> this organization, which is influential, not just in terms of policy, but I would argue also social, socially and culturally. We'll get into that, yep. uh, what I like to call kind of the sidewalk level of doing policy. But of course, it's really important to understand who you are and what your personal and professional journey was to this point. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I graduated from college not knowing what I was interested in. I was an English major and was banging around in, in New York, um, working at a, like an ad agency and um, not very happy with my career choice at that time. Um, and then I read Ayn Rand. And I don't know if the many people's, um, uh, some people's stories start with that in the movement. And I was totally struck by um, by it and, um, and ended up moving to Washington, D.C., kind of, you know, crawling up to the Cato Institute to try to, <laughs> to try to get a job. And I was very fortunate that Cato was used to dealing with such people. And um, I got a job there as a junior. Um, you know, in the beginning, I was, um, you know, there was that it was still an era where we were making physical copies and making coffee. And, and I was you know, helping edit things. Um, but I worked up from there and became a policy analyst. And um, and since then, I've just loved um, politics and public policy. Um, so I went back and got a master's and worked on the Hill for a couple of years. But I've now been at Independent Women's Forum for almost 20 years, and it's absolutely been my um, my home. Um, it's such a great group of women. It was great when I was starting out there, and today I'm just so proud of the the team we have. We've got just absolutely fabulous women working working with us. And so you, you've done all this while also, as I'm sure you would say, <laughs> being being mom first, right? Yeah, of so, course. So, yeah. so tell us, we, we've had, as I, you and I were, were talking off camera, we've had a couple of really articulate guys here on this show in the last couple of months talking about fatherhood, the crisis of masculinity, something I'm, I'm sure you agree with. But here's my opportunity to ask a, a friend sure. of mine who's a mother of five. Tell us about motherhood, especially in this, this 
setting in, in which you are a leader of the American public square. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I've had the opportunity, I think a growing number of women are having this opportunity um, to be really be able to um, kind of lean in to being a mom as well as lean in to being, um, you know, in the public space and being a, a, a leader in a community like Independent Women's Forum. Um, but, you know, I became a mom, my, my oldest just turned 17. Um, so I had only been at IWF for a, a couple years when I um, when I was going to have my first baby. And I asked the leadership there, I said, and mostly at that point, I was really a writer and a policy person. And I said, I wanted to stay home. Um, and if I wasn't able to stay home, I was going to have to, I didn't want to, I, I wanted to quit. And so they said, all right, well, we'll see how it works out. And I um, mean, I was one of the the first people or a few people who started working full time from home, um, and it worked out really well. Um, it gave me the opportunity to um, to be at home with my baby. Um, later on, you know, I've had I've gotten a bunch of different kids and um, and different living situations, um, but I've had and I've had some childcare, and I've definitely used childcare both um, you know <laughs> um, childcare that you, I paid for or people who came into the house um, to make it work. Um, but I've mostly been able to be a real hands-on mother, and that's been incredibly important important to me. And one of the things that's been great is um, at IWF. I feel like when in our earlier days when we were smaller, we started finding women who. We're looking for kind of those shades of gray, not making a black of black and white choice between staying home full time or being a full time worker. And so we were able, able to offer mostly, you know, we don't have a, we're a fully virtual organization. So we were able to say, you know, give us six hours a, um, a day or four hours a day. Um, and you can, you know, you're not going to earn as much as you would if you were a full-time worker, but you're going to be able to have a chance to make an impact and work with a great team. Um, and that's really how we've built. And we've gotten just some fabulous women who might otherwise be on the sidelines. No, that's really important. So I know just here by virtue of, of leading Heritage, of course, we have a lot of young women, and this is their first or second job in their careers who are working here at Heritage. We have in our audience a lot of, of younger women who pay attention to what Heritage has to say, listen to this podcast, among others. And invariably, when I'm talking to them, either here in this particular workforce or in talks that I'm giving, they always ask me the question, and I feel a little ill-equipped to do this, even though I grew up with a bunch of sisters and have a bunch of daughters. <laughs> uh, you know, Kevin, Dr. Roberts, you know, what advice do you have? Here's my opportunity to ask you, and uh, with kids ranging from 17 to much younger, the question to give them, which is advice for them, you know, maybe they're a year or two outside of college. Yeah. They are very happy to be in our movement, working toward taking back the Republic with all the cheerfulness they muster. But they, I do know this, they do feel this tug. I mean, I know this from, from being a friend and mentor to some of their fiancés, their husbands, their boyfriends. Uh, and we can talk about the, the, the man side of this here in a minute. But for the young women, what advice do you give them about that, that tug and that pull? Yeah, you know, I think to, to be as intentional um, and clear-headed about your personal goals as well as your professional ones. I think a lot of um, young women are told, you know, dream big and, you know, how are you going to get ahead in that job? And that's really important. And you should absolutely think about that. But you should also think really seriously where you want to be in five to 10 years um, uh, when it comes to family life. Um, and obviously, things don't always work out. And so I don't want to, you know, um, I always think, you know, I've, I love being a mom and it's 
by far my most important important role. Um, but I think it's important, you know, that there's some women who won't end up getting married and having kids, and you can still have a really important um, career and really important impact in your community. So I don't want to make this as a motherhood or successful career. Or, um, those are the, your choices. I think having a, a robust personal life is important to everybody, and it should and it should be. Um, but yeah, especially when if you do aspire to be a mom, it is important to look seriously at what the different jobs um, you're. What jobs are compatible with the kind of mother that you want to be? Because um, that was one reason when I was working on Capitol Hill, I thought to myself, and I was newly married, and I knew I wanted to have children, I thought, this is going to be rough because <laughs> you look around and and it, there's not much flexibility. You really have to be there. It's um, it didn't seem like it was going to be an easy one to do as a, a mom. If um, and so that's one reason why I started looking around and I found IWF and I could tell that they you know I talked a lot about workplace and trying to find opportunities for women and then IWF has been just wonderful and absolutely walking the walk of of actually providing women those places. And I think it's becoming more and more common. It is. I, it just to relate a personal anecdote, our, our college-age daughter was asking me this question. She said, Dad, this is over the last couple of weeks. I want to help save the republic, but I also want to be a wife and a mom. What do I do? Yep. And, and my advice to her, and so you might get an email from me soon, <laughs> was you know, find find a, a couple of ladies who can be your mentors, right, in addition to mom, yep. who's, who's, of course, great. But the, the point is, I think millions of young women are, are feeling this, right? And we want to encourage them, especially given the worldview that you have and that, that I have, that our organizations have that worldview being that America's got some problems. We'll talk about that momentarily, but we're also have a certain resolve that we're going to get them fixed. It seems as if the way we're going to get them fixed is to make sure that our places of employment, our organizations are friendly to you know, having not just a career, but also, as you said, a robust personal life. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because I do think that um, that in spite of in spite of all of the problems, and I do think that one of the, the biggest threats to um, this is a big government solution because I think when I look at everything that's kind of happening organically um, with increased flexibility and more opportunities um, and these different new paradigms of, of work, I worry that the federal government could come in and really squash this by making it um, much more all or nothing or making it harder. You know, I'm now an employer when it comes to when at IWF. And so, you know, I do have to put on a kind of hard headed, you know, business hat, make sure that I'm doing justice to um, the resources that we're giving and being good stewards of those resources. Um, and I need to have honest conversations with employees um, where the government could really mess that up. Um, but hopefully, um, if, if that doesn't happen, if we can stop that from happening, there's going to be more and more opportunities. Um, it shouldn't, again, there shouldn't, there should be tons of shades of gray um, when it comes to, to work life. Um, and women should have a lot of capacity to continue, continue working when they're, even when they're moms. Well, I've got one more follow-up question about this before we, we begin our pivot into looking at American society. And it's, I guess it's the teacher in me. Just I try to spend as much time with young people as possible because I, I just think, of course, to state the obvious, they're the future of America. But the, the, the two generations younger than ours, if I may, are feeling a little disaffected, uh, perhaps even isolated. And that might be something we talk about. But here's the hypothetical for you, sure. Carrie. And I'm sure it's something that's happened. There's a, a young engaged couple. We just heard the advice you gave to the young lady. Yep. What about the advice you give to the young man? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like it's it's very similar. Um, and it's not because, um, you know, I I don't think it's a problem that um, that more women are likely to end up taking a step back from the, the workforce. I do think that there's, um, you know, obviously there's 
biology based in this. A woman's role in birthing and caring for especially babies is fundamentally different, and Mother Nature has just made us um, different in those those roles. Um, and I don't think that's anything we should shy away from. But I do think that it's it's a wonderful thing now that men should be thinking about the types of dads they want to be. Um, and there, that could be, you know, there's a lot of men who make tremendous sacrifices um, to be primary earners and to make it possible for the wife to stay home. Um, and, and often, I, I feel like sometimes when this bleeds into the wage gap and this, you know, the the suggestion by the the left and some of um, progressive um, women often complain about the differences in earnings and make it sound as though, you know, men are all sitting there earning all this money and, you know, chewing cigars and sitting in boardrooms as if it's such fun. When you, you look at the reality of it, a lot of men who are out there earning for their families are taking on some pretty tough jobs. They're working overnight shifts, they're driving tr trucks overnight, they're in fishing boats, they're you know, um, under, they're taking on some physically dangerous jobs and grueling jobs in order to bring home more money um, you know, for their families. And I feel like that's something that we should, that's that's valuable and that deserves to be respected and um, and um, and rewarded. And I think that's, that's an important thing. But men should also think about the kind of fathers they want to be, which might mean that they take time off to, to be or step back to, to be better, to be more engaged fathers um, as well. So it's more similar than it is different, um, even if those, if it the the outcomes end up shaking out a little differently sometimes. And it seems to me just listening and to what you said and and honestly, beyond merely being polite, agreeing with everything you just said, that you've just given a great definition for what we might call the culture of life. And by that, I'm not referring to a particular policy issue or a contemporary debate in American society. Rather, taking a step back from all of that, from that world, and just thinking about this from the standpoint of, of parents, from the standpoint of American society, that to the extent that Americans, especially those of us who are right of center, can be articulating a very positive, broad definition of the culture of life along the lines of what you just said, the better off we are, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it really is. I think this is um, pro-child and pro-family. Pro um, and we should be, again, and I think that um, one of the things that is, I think, one of the greatest challenge in being like right of center is talking about why just because something is, is good and we want more of it doesn't mean that government should come in and do it. Because a lot of the times government, when it tries to do good, does such tremendous harm. Um, so when we are talking about, you know, flexible work environments, being more open and supportive of different, you know, childcare um, uh, facilities and trying to provide more um, support for different types of families um, is so important. That's like absolutely something we should be all be doing in our personal lives and as an organizationally. Um, but we just shouldn't get the federal government in there because it is the enemy of flexibility, even when it's trying to mandate flexibility. That's, you know, an oxymoron. And it just doesn't well, stand up in practice. And we didn't didn't talk about this before, although we, we don't script the show. I sure. mean, this really is just informal conversation. So I don't know where you stand on this, but it seems as if one of the lessons of the last couple of years with the COVID shutdowns, but you know, put the, yep. the disease off to the side. But I'm just talking about the government response to it. It underscores the point you just made, right? Yeah, humility. The government should have a lot. There's of humility. a novel concept, exactly. Gary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That um, and and this goes for people on the right as well as on the left. That I think that um, that um, we need to um not given to the temptation to use government to try to impose our perfect vision of society on any country or populace or anything. Um, but man, the left needs to really take some humility and recognize um, that so much of their kind of one size fit all command and control from Washington can cause just tremendous harm. We saw that in COVID and particularly with the damage on children, which is something I think that um, 
it has to should be an ongoing conversation because we need to learn a lot of lessons from COVID. And I fear that some of this is being swept swept under the rug. We just wish to you got to whistle past what just happened as um, as a society and particularly on the left. They don't want to take a hard look at what happened because it was such a disaster. It, and it's frustrating, and it, it it's largely a problem born out of the left's unwillingness to be humble when yep. they're in power. But it's also one, I don't mean this to be a partisan comment because there are right of center governors and policymakers who are wrongheaded about this as sure. well. Yep. And I can say as an educator, beginning to see the data, it's just objective data, including by some government agencies about the decline in educational achievement over the last couple of years, that's no surprise to me. It's no surprise to yeah. you, right? Given your professional experience, the fact that you're a mom, most importantly. And and yet, as you said, the, the policymakers just want us to whistle past this and not learn our lessons. A, a humble people, a humble society, a group of humble policymakers would say, we're going to put politics off to the side and we're just going to say we need to learn some lessons. But that's not happening. Yeah, it, it's absolutely not happening. Um, I even think that it's one of those things that when you look at, um, especially the, the federal level, um, and really what happened across COVID is just how much the children were given kind of, they were the last pri priority. Um, and, you know, of course, we want to honor our parents and older generations. Um, you know, I'm now creeping into one of becoming one of those older generations. Notice you said yeah, that, I exactly. didn't. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and we're, we're getting up there now. Um, but um, but my goodness, when we look at the, the focus and how we really shut down society and shut down, um, you know, children's sacrificed kids' mental health and educational you know, not just education, but their ability to like form speech and emotional health and all of those things um, to protect the elderly. And I know my parents who are elderly and not tremendously good health would say, you know, don't do this in my name, you know, send those kids to school and I'll take take the risks. And um, and it really is. I think that's something that we really need to look back out and remember that in prioritizing things, every other generation would have known you sacrifice for your children. You don't ask your children to sacrifice for you. Yeah, that's well said. One of the things, other examples of the hubris of the left, and it's it's almost unimaginable, it's difficult to comprehend that you and I are going to sit here and have to talk about this, is their articulation, their, their promoting of the transgender ideology. Your organization has been at the forefront of fighting back on that. I Part of me thinks we shouldn't even have to explain this, but you know, the other part of me says, no, we need to make sure that Americans who are a very generous and tolerant people yep. who don't want to hate other people. We, we've gotten past that point in our history when when they hear some more articulate members of the American left talk about promoting transgender ideology, they're sort of open to that. But but explain ultimately what it is and why it's a problem. Yeah, it's um, this is such an important conversation. You're right. It's something I never expected to be um um, you know, to have to be to speaking about, but I do think it's it's incredibly impo important because things have changed. This isn't about being tolerant. It's not about being inclusive and kind and fair and opposing bullying. Everyone opposes bullying um, in schools of, of anyone. Um, this is really about something else entirely. Um, and as a woman's organization, I see this as a tremendous threat to women. This is not an equal threat to, um, although it is a threat to boys and there's um, boys who are, are caught up in this. It's really a threat to girls. When we talk about what's happening with the transgender agenda, this is about pushing, it's really about an effort to erase the very concept of biological sex as having any legal 
legal meaning or um, or implications for society. Um, and you know, the Supreme Court and our laws have long recognized that you know you and I can be legally equal um, and be protected under the laws, but that doesn't mean that we have to pretend that, that we're the same. Um, and really, the consequences of us pretending we were say are the same are is that women will suffer. There is the only reason why we distinguish between um, men and women in things like sports and in prisons um, and in privacy and areas of privacy is to protect women from men because we're physically weaker and that's um, we're physically weaker and therefore we're more, more vulnerable. Um, and it's funny, again, as the father of daughters, I bet you're familiar with this too. I feel like for a long time now as a society, we've been uncomfortable with acknowledging that women are physically weaker. You know, I look at some of the like shows and cartoons and whatever that are um, promoted to little kids in particular little girls. And you always have this, you know, hundred pound little girl who put, punches some giant guy and he he falls over. Well, that's not reality. <laughs> and so and girls need to recognize that um, that men are stronger than women. And that doesn't mean that there's never a strong woman. It doesn't mean that there's not exceptions to that. Um, and it doesn't mean that women can't be wonderful athletes and impressive, physically impressive. But Women and men are physically different, and that means that women in things like races, but also just as importantly as matter of security, um, we're likely to lose out to men if, if physical strength is is the criteria. And that's why we have spaces for women um, and this uh, the transgender effort to um, to change the definition of women, to make the word woman mean anyone who wants to identify as a woman comes at a tremendous cost to to women who are born as women. And and we've seen this. Thank you, by the way, for that that truly beautiful explanation. I mean, it, trust the science, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's, and, and as I'm sure you would agree, there, there's a beauty in recognizing that, course, right? Because yeah. there's a complementarity even beyond the biology yeah. of men and women, emotionally, socially, culturally. This is sort of goes back to your 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 concept, your explanation of of a robust personal life. But where I wanted to go with that explanation in terms of policy is with what the Biden regime is wanting to do with Title IX, a truly momentous piece of legislation in American history, important for all of us, men and women, liberals, conservatives, everyone yeah. in between. I say that as a as a former college president as well. But what's what's the diagnosis of what they're trying to do and how do we fix it? Yeah, it, it really is really important. And, and something I think is important to, to mention is that this is there is bipartisan concern about this. This isn't just something that those of us on the right are belly aching about. Um, I've worked with just absolutely wonderful women on um, who are could consider themselves, you know, progressive Democrats, liberals, um, like certainly on the left. Um, and we don't agree about much, but we sure agree about this. Um, and that is what the Title IX is basically um, moving away from the concept of protecting biological women um, and creating um, the same, basically making conflating it with gender identity. So again, this is this idea that anyone who decides that they consider themselves a woman will be considered a woman, which means have access to women's spaces, whether that's athletic teams or facilities. Um, and it has implications, um, you know, it has Widespread impl implications, things like you know, housing in colleges, um, um, you know, on field trips, and um, also domestic violence um, shelters have started to be required by that's through the um, Violence Against Women's Act that are required to bring in biological men. So this is this has real stakes for for women's you know this whole concept of safe spaces for women is really being being eroded. What if someone wants to help 
independent women's forum and other aligned organizations take action against yeah. that. Because one of the things we're trying to do is provide context for something, good diagnosis of it, which you have, but also give people a sense of, you know, go take a, an action step or two. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one right now we're in a commons period and that commons period is ongoing until um, a little later in this month with the Department of Education on these new rules that really gut Title IX protections. Um, you know, Title IX was passed explicitly to make sure that women have equal access to education. Education. We are now turning that on its head and are about to really throw out those protections with this new this new guidance. So people can come, they can come to um, actually Independent Women's Voice, um, which is our 501c4, which has um, the ability to file comments and make your, your you know, we've got some draft um, so people can see the types of concerns that we're try trying to express, but they can make it their own and share their, their own experience. So please come to IWV.org and you can see that. And this is no sort of abstract concept. I mean, this 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 rulemaking process, which I was largely ignorant of until a year or so ago, is really important. Unfortunately, yeah. it's it's the most common way that the federal government makes law, yeah. which is for the executive branch <laughs> to do this, right? Another problem we could talk and, about. But, you know, yeah. To talk about yet another thing you were an expert on before I even knew about, conservatives just weren't even playing on this field. Yeah, but we are now. We are now exactly, and it is. It is. It is one of those things that um, that uh, that it's unfortunate that so much of what ends up um, the rules that end up governing our life are not decided in Congress where they should be. Where at least we could be bothering our our members of Congress, and they're supposed to have to listen to us, or they're going to be held accountable at least every two years um, in the House. Um, but where this is um, agencies that make these sweeping um, laws, and sometimes are sweeping um, rules that then have the impact of laws. Um, and what I think about what's happening now is really about a gutting of language. If you can rewrite the word woman um, to mean something very different than woman as it has been commonly understood for thousands of years now. Um, uh, that's, you know, that's power. And that's something that we should be very concerned about. We don't want our agencies to just be able to decide that our written laws mean something entirely different by changing the, the definition of these words. Well, it, it prompts me to ask this question to get your thoughts in that moment, thinking about the word woman, when the perfectly smart, elegant Supreme Court nominee is sitting there and can't define the word woman. What were you thinking when yeah. you saw that? Um, I thought, my goodness, we need to do something about that <laughs> because um, because that's, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that's almost become a punchline because it's so ridiculous because obviously she does know. Like it's it's absurd that to pretend that she was somehow actually flummoxed about the, the definition of this word. She just, it was, po it was politically loaded for her and she didn't want to have to navigate what has now become a real thicket on the left of saying, well, a woman could be. And um, so, um, so know that this is now one of the um, things I'm proudest of with Independent Women's Forum is that we've created something called the Women's Bill of Rights. Um, and it is very simple. Um, you know, sometimes conservative, I think, get nervous when we talk about the Bill of Rights because we say, you know, we all have our rights. You can't just add new rights. But this isn't about adding new rights. It's about protecting what we have and making sure that women remain a respected and recognized class of individuals. Um, so all the Women's Bill of Rights would do is it would do two things, and that's define words like woman, man, male, female so that the 
all of the times that it's those words are used in in law under current law, we know what we're talking about. You know, just in the Violence Against Women Act alone, the it's the word woman is used hundreds of times. It's really important we know what we're talking about um, for that. Um, and the other thing that the Women's Bill of Rights does is is basically um, codifies this idea that there are times when um, when separate is a, like separate facilities is not discrimination. It's actually necessary for women's equality. And again, this is talking about women's prisons. It's talking about things like um, locker rooms, bathrooms, um, and of course, athletics, where to be equal, women need to have a separate space. So let me ask you a devil's advocate question. Sure. And it really is just that. Let's say, and I, I've actually seen this this kind of rhetoric on social media by somewhat thoughtful people, it seems. They say, oh, all of this talk about the, the Title IX issues, transgender ideology, this, this is just conservatives making a mountain out of a molehill. What's your response to that? Yeah. Um, you know, we see um, example after example when it comes to just women's women's sports. I think everybody saw, and it would be very kind of famous, this Leah Thomas, who um, was the um, biological male who ended up swimming and really dominating the NCAA per, um, uh, season, swimming season la last year. And people think, oh, but you know, that was just one example. Um, well, we recently had a rally to defend Title, title IX, where we invited it ended up being, um, you know, dozens of female athletes who had a, a similar story and were told not only that they, not only were they losing out in, in um, to biological men um, in sports like skating, um, wrestling, track and field, like the fighting sports, like karate and um, versions of that that I don't, I don't know their names, but all you know, volleyball, track and field. There's a growing number of sports where this is, um, this is happening to women where they're not only losing out and being told basically to step aside so that these male-bodied competitors um, can have their day in the sun. Um, but they're also being told they're not allowed to talk about it or complain about it. Or if you do, you're going to be canceled and your life is going to be ruined, which was really, um, I think, the most disturbing aspect of what happened at UPenn and with the swimming situation was that the fellow teammates who were concerned um, were told they were, if they spoke out about it, they were going to be off the team. They weren't allowed to speak out about it. They had to share a locker room with this, you know, fully intact bio biological male. So these are you know, 18 year old girls who are having to um, change um, swimsuits um, and shower with a biological male. Um, it's, you know, that's just not okay. As, as the mother of, of you, I've got three daughters. I know you've got daughters. You, that's, that's not okay. And it, Everybody should recognize this isn't okay. Um, and we can have, you know, we can want Leah Thomas to be included and be treated with kindness and have the opportunity to live a full and flourishing life. Um, but that shouldn't mean that you have to sacrifice the, you know, dignity, the, um, you know, the security um, and the comfort of, of all women that these women were asked to make room for him or for this, you know, this biological male. And, um, you, nothing was asked of, of this person of Leah Thomas to, to make set, to make room for these, these women. I, it just, it, it burns me up. And so I get very passionate about this because. Well, as you should, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's, infuriating. And, and, and to your point, it's, it's nothing against Leah Thomas or anyone else with yep. that cross to bear. Yeah. It is a comment that we have conflated two things. One, the very noble and beautiful American spirit of trying to treat everyone in kindness. Yeah. And yet the other good, which is making sure that we're protecting just decency and, and privacy, right? Something yep. that is so common sense, it's burning you up and you're one of the most eminently reasonable people <laughs> well, I know. Thank you. You know, and I do think that the other thing that is um, that we haven't talked about um, as much yet is um, is kind of what's happening beyond, um, you know, there's obviously cases where people are, um, you know, 
have gender dysphoria and we should be trying to think about how to to help them make sure that they have um, you know the space to be included in society um, but then we need to think about what's happening now um, in schools when it comes to the gender ideology that's being pushed on on kids and I do say pushed on kids and I don't use that term lightly um, because this isn't just about um, you know sex ed teaching you about you know different lifestyles and whatever as you get into high school and when you know, most people would think that that's something that children should be aware of um, this is about encouraging really encouraging young children to question whether or not they are comfortable in their biological sex and the thing is is that I think for most people um, this doesn't occur to them. This isn't something um, that occurs to, to most people other than people of really serious situations, and we need to respect those people. Um, but right now you see an absolute explosion in the number of young children who consider themselves um, you know, non-gender conforming. Um, and this is a serious thing. I mean, once you are decide you're not gender conforming, um, if you're moved into the medical world with this, this has serious implications with kids being put on, um, being put on cross sex hormones, um, and then really changing the trajectory of their lives, um, which can end in medical interventions that end in sterilization. You know, again, as, um, as a mom with some still pretty small kids, you know, I feel like it's pretty crazy to be encouraging my children to um, question this. And then if they do question it, especially as it becomes more of a social contagion among girls in the preteen, um, to then um, take it, to not recognize it for what it is, and that's probably for the overwhelming majority, a phase that we need to treat with respect, but my goodness, not start giving them drugs, which um, we just don't know how it's going to impact them years down the road. Um, so I think that this is, it's a weird moment that we have right now. And I think parents should be very aware and, um, and um, of the forces that are like what's being told to their kids and the implications of it. Because um, I worry we're going to look back in 10 years and think, wow, what did we do to this generation of children? That's so true. And it's aided and abetted by all of social media. Yep. Oh, in, absolutely. In particular, Instagram and TikTok, but all of it. Yep. And ought to make us wary as parents. But even for, for people listening who aren't parents, just need to we need to be wary as Americans. Yeah. As as humans of of that. But it's also tragic. I mean, here at, at Heritage, a couple of my colleagues have written eloquently and very charitably about the tragedy of people with gender dysphoria who were tracked into some of that so-called medical. Medical treatment. I, I won't, you know, give it any any credence by calling it medical treatment. Yeah. Um, because of suicide rates, and it's it's tragic, and it's of course accentuating the, the the feeling of despair and disaffectedness and loneliness that younger Americans are feeling anyway, aggravated by the COVID shutdowns. All of that is very uh, sort of pessimistic, which is not how I want to conclude our conversation <laughs> because you're so cheerful and those of us at Heritage are known as cheerful warriors as well. So I wanna conclude with two sort of forward-looking sure. questions. Uh, although I'm very grateful we had the opportunity to just be real yeah. about, about that issue. The first of the last two questions, Carrie, sure. is I give you a magic wand and it's a policy magic wand yep. over the next three years. What do you change in federal policy, state policy? But it's a magic wand, so you could change something socially oh, and boy, culturally gosh, too. You know, boy, see, that's, see that's if your a... kids and husband will do this yeah, for you tonight. Yeah, this is um, boy, that's a that's a wonderful question. Um, you know, I think that right now my head is is so at the schools, and I do think that the um that a tremendous um a 
one big thing that would have such huge implications is if we were able to loosen um, control of resources away from government, from policymakers at all level and give it to parents. You know, if we are spending on average, you know, it's something $15,000 or so at the K through 12 level, depending on where you are around the country, um, if we were able to to move that and put it in parents' hands, we would have an entirely different education system. Um, and you know, and it's funny because I think sometimes, um, you know, people think, oh, that's that's crazy, but it shouldn't be. My goodness, can you imagine how wonderful it would be? And not just for conservative parents to be able to have schools that reflect our values. You know, I don't know that I would be pushing my kids into a one that was, you know, fully conservative. Um, you know, we would. There's a lot of different paradigms of education that would we'd have this flourishing of different, um, you know, different opportunities, and it would be so wonderful. And I think we would have a move away from some of the concerning things. Um, I think girls, there would be girl more more single sex opportunities for girls where I know that, um, you know, back when I was a kid, there was a recognition that girls being in a girls only space um, encouraged more women to try things like science and technology and mathematics and be more outspoken. Um, and um, you know, why can't we have more of that at the public school level? So, you know, that's, I'd start there, although I want to, I want to think about it more because I'm well, sure there's a lot more we could do with the, our magic wand. Next time you're on, <laughs> you, you'll know that that question yeah, will come exactly. and, uh, and you can anticipate it. But what I love about that response is it's, it's bottom up. You know, some people gravitate to, and it's fine. Yeah. You know, they want to change some federal policy, but you recognize that our ultimate aim is flourishing. It's self-governance. We can still trust Americans to do that if we could just get government out of the way, right? Yeah. Last question, sort of piggybacking on that, is a question about optimism. And I may just note sitting here with you for the time we've had together that you're cheerful, you're you're sober about the challenges we're facing. But what is it that in spite of all the challenges we're facing and the reality at the schools and the federal policies with Title IX caused you to be optimistic when you woke up this morning? Yeah, gosh. And, you know, I, I am much more optimistic than I am pessimistic. So this isn't a stretch. I feel like we are at a um, a real turning point. I think we're at a, a moment in American history where um, things are about to get a lot better. Um, and I think that's partially because so many more people are engaged and feel like they can make a difference. Um, I think that, you know, um, you know, a lot of folks point back to what's happened with school boards around the country. And I think that's that's just the tip of that iceberg where there was a lot of people who said, wait a second, this is crazy. You know, why this this shouldn't be. And, um, and they didn't take um, for um, kind of, they didn't just take the idea that, oh, this is how it has to be and I'm just gonna kind of get through it and go around it as best I can. A lot of people got really involved and started treating their local governments, their school boards, like they, um, like they had a role to play. Um, and I think that's encouraging a new moment in America where I hear you know, we've got something called Independent Women's Network where we're encouraging um, chapters and communities of, of women to start, you know, not just school boards, but to start talking to city leaders, start getting involved, start pushing, meeting with your members of Congress. Um, and it doesn't have to be you know, a Republican member of Congress. The Democrats are gonna be wanting to hear from you too. We can make a difference. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks out there on the left as well as the right who think that what's happening with a lot of the culture culture stuff and with the crack with the free speech the kind of crushing the cancel the growth of cancel culture it has to stop and i think the people are starting to put their foot down um and so i'm tremendously encouraged i think we're going to have um there's a lot to look forward to
I am too. I think you can always trust the American people. Yeah. You know, Winston Churchill said, you can always trust Americans to do the right thing once they've tried everything else. <laughs> and it seems like we've been living through having tried yes, everything exactly. else. Yeah. Well, Carrie Lucas of Independent Women's Forum, thanks so much for what you do. And thanks so much for spending time with me today. Well, this has been such fun. Thanks for having me on and for, for all your support. You bet. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Obviously, you know that the work that Independent Women's Forum does is crucial. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will, of course, give us a very sober view of American challenges, but also a very optimistic one about how we fix them. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.